You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Uh-oh, guess what day it is. Guess what day it is. Huh? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? <laughs> Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey there, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. That's right, folks. We're back, and this time we are doing an artist spotlight on the most legendary of artists, Mr. Neil Adams, who sadly we lost earlier this year and in a true blow to the industry. He he was my comic book artist for quite a long time, and you know I'm looking forward to chatting about this one and he made things look super lifelike and you know realistic and it was you know awesome to be able to meet him once and actually be able to talk with him and you know thank him for you know everything he did and he he was okay with it you know there's good and bad i've heard about him so it's gonna be very interesting to talk about it tonight but of course the man the myth the legend Mr. Mike Gordon is here. Have you ever met Neil? Howdy. Uh, yes, I've had the opportunity to meet Neil a couple of times because uh, he was also, in addition to being an amazing artist and a legendary um, icon of the industry, he was also very frequent um, in in the convention circuit. Uh, he usually <laughs> was hard to miss. He usually had like, what, two or three tables, uh, huge booth setups. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, I got a chance to meet him a couple times. Nothing really too, too in-depth, uh, just basically enough time to sign some books and and me uh, offer my appreciation on on his work up till now. But, um, uh, you know, he was he was. Like if there was a Mount Rushmore of comic book artists, um, Neil would would be definitely among them. That's for sure. Oh, very much so, and it's pretty awesome. Some of the most iconic, you know, images of comics from the late '60s into the mid '70s are images by Neil Adams, and we even seen some of the uh, stuff that he's worked on become movies. You know, over the last couple of years with the MCU and even some of the stuff in the DCU, you know, it's pretty awesome to be able to see. And some of them have even emulated some of his images, which is even better. So it's kind of cool. And it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about it tonight. Got a great crew for it. But we definitely would love to hear from you guys. Feedback at earthstation1.com is always the way to go. If you get a chance, you know, please write us your thoughts on Neil Adams about his work, about his, his work as a writer, as a penciler, an inker, an editor, a publisher, you name it, he's done it. And you know what? I think it's been, it's going to be a lot of fun for tonight. So definitely drop us a line. And if you get a chance, please get rate us five stars. We would always appreciate it as always. And, you know, we'd like hearing that you guys are out there, that you're loving the show, that you're liking what we're working on. And, it's just really cool to be able to, you know, know that people are liking what we're doing, that we're, you know, able to be able to take a look at us and, you know, some self, 
you know, some self-recognition or retrospect, you know, as we always like to say, five stars is the gold star for us. So please, five stars or leave us feedback. Let us know how we're doing. Please. We definitely would love to hear from you guys. Speaking of loving to hear from you guys, another way you can help support us is by going to the ESO Network Patreon at patreon.com slash ESO Network, where you can help support the show for as little as you know a dollar a month. You get you know original material. You can get listen to podcasts before they're released. You can also get you know some ESO swag. You can get window stickers, magnets, even take a shot at the geek seat. You never know. It's pretty cool for that tonight. And any night, anytime you want to help support ESO, just go to patreon.com slash ESO network. And we would, you know, have to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Speaking of the bottom of our hearts, it's getting very bright, very hot out right now. We just had July 4th. I know a number of us were at the beach this last weekend or into the mountains, and it was sunny and beautiful. And you know what also helped? Tifosi Optical Sunglasses. That's right, folks. I wore my Tifosi Optical Sunglasses over the weekend when I went hiking up in the North Georgia mountains, and it was a great time. Judy and I both went, and you know, a couple of people commented, hey, where did you get those sunglasses? And you know what? Told them our friends at Tifosi Optical had these amazing glasses, and they just had a 4th of July sale where they had 25% off every all their orders. Not too bad. 25% off. But as a way of saying thank you, you know, for your custom order, you know, Tifosi Optical has different sales. But on top of the sale, you could also use a coupon and get 10% off that price. That's pretty awesome, folks. And you know what the coupon code is? Earth Station One. How about that? 10% off your whole order for a fabulous pair of sunglasses. Just te- check out TifosiOptics.com and tell them Earth Station One sent you. And now we're here with new friend of the show, L.A. Gray, who is an amazing filmmaker. Welcome to Earth Station One. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely, Laura, and welcome to the station. Uh, for those people who may not be familiar with uh, what you do, let, let, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, like you said, I am a filmmaker. I um, have been in the industry for a little over 10 years. Um, got my start with a pilot with Lifetime, fell in love with the film industry, and just started learning the art of uh, directing and producing and writing for film. My former life was in theater, and so it was a little bit of a transition that had to be made there to learn you know, the, the difference in the two and how to do it effectively. And so, yeah, just learning the craft of, of all of that and reaching out, found some mentors to help me with my growth and understanding of the industry. And I've produced several films since then. I've worked on several shows, uh, feature films, short films. And this is, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Wow, that's awesome. That is really awesome. How, would you say that uh, this uh, sort of attraction for for storytelling started from an early age? Storytelling, yes. I um, started out at a young age with doing church plays and that kind of thing. And then I went to Alliance Theater in Atlanta, where I grew up, took acting lessons there. I was a dancer for the Georgia Ballet. And that's all, you know, what birthed the desire to be in performance in general. And um, I was, I think by the time I was 
2014, I had published a few po- uh, poems and a few poetry books. I was writing short stories. I was writing ballets, all of that. So yeah, definitely storytelling has always been a, a, a part of me. So uh, would you say that you've always been sort of interested too in both sides of you know, the on stage and off what happens behind the scenes? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I have experience and I've done nearly everything there is to do both in front of and behind the stage, in front of the camera and behind the camera. And it, you know, it all works together. And if you do one, then it helps you better understand the other. And so, yeah, I, I love all the aspects of, of both in front of and behind. <laughs> and, and what kind of stories would you say you are most attracted to? I would say I am most, if I sit down and I'm writing a script, it almost always ends up being some sort of drama. Um, (laughs) I've experienced a lot of drama in my life and art is life and life is art. And so um, I think, you know, I pulled a lot of inspiration from my past and my tragedies and my life story to tell other stories. And so I, I think that it automatically just kind of veers toward the direction of, of drama. Um, but I, I primarily work in the faith-based industry and uh, telling family-friendly stories. And, um, you know, even them end up being dramatic, of course, but I love, I love to, uh, write comedy. I don't get the opportunity very often to write comedy, but I love writing comedy. I just actually finished a script that's a dark comedy, um, that we'll probably be filming later this year. Wow. That's, that's pretty amazing. Now, is that also faith-based as well because i would imagine that some people would think that, that was a little tricky right to do something a dark comedy that's faith-based uh no it's definitely not faith-based um, okay gotcha gotcha <laughs> but you know when i write something that's not faith-based it's always family friendly something that you can sit and watch with your children yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh as far as you know from my uh, from my experience you know it was really difficult for me to to sort of get used to the performance side, I'm much more behind the scenes guy um, because putting yourself out there, it's a lot riskier when you're in front of the people, right? It, it can be if you're not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you like to be prepared. I, well, I kind of have to be. I run, I wear so many hats every single day that if, you know, I lose one hat, then I lose them all. <laughs> what are some projects that uh, you are particularly proud of projects actually happened just recently uh well two of them actually so back in january i got to work with bruce willis on his very last film wire room i was his yeah i was his photographer um for that project and my primary job was to capture him and to capture him you know behind the scenes and uh you know, shots of him to use for like the poster marketing, promoting and, and all of that. So that was a really fun experience that I got to meet him, uh, especially knowing that it's going to be his very last project. So, so when, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but so when you were, when they were making that, when he was making that, everybody was aware that it was his last project? No. Oh, okay. Well, that's, that would take a lot of the weight off, I would think, right? Right. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot about that, that 
I can't say, but I will say that um, I noticed something different. I can't go into the details, but I I noticed something that, you know, led me to go to, you know, one of the production managers. And I was like, so what exactly is going on? You know, um, and that's when I was, you know, filled in. But that was before we had a final diagnosis of what it actually was. They thought it might be something else. Um, mm. Just, you know, on the same lines, but um, they, you know, didn't know yet exactly what was going on. And so, you know, the, we had specific instructions about how to handle situations and everything. And so um, we had no idea that it would be his very last project. Uh, that particular production company actually had slated, I think, at least two more films that they were going to shoot with him this year. Um, but because of his diagnosis, those are not happening. Right, right, right. Well, that's extremely fortunate that you got to spend that much time with him. Oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. It was filmed right here in Alabama. Wow. And and sorry, your other project that you were... Oh, um, another project that I just finished back in March. Um, I was working with David Lipper. Um, David Lipper, you would probably most recognize him as a uh, Viper from Full House. He played DJ's boyfriend on Full mm. House. Uh, not the nice, like clean cut one, but the one with, you know, the long hair and piercings and all of that that dad did not necessarily approve of. Um, he played that guy. Um, he is now a director and producer and he did a movie, uh, called murder at hollow Creek. And we filmed it in Mississippi. And on that one, I got to be the script supervisor. Um, but I met a lot of really amazing people. There was a lot of nostalgia on set because there was a, uh, you know, a lot of TV actors that were there that, you know, maybe not on TV today. Um, And so it was really cool getting to meet all of those people. But, you know, most of all that atmosphere on set and what makes it one of my favorite is that atmosphere that David Lipper brought to his set. It was very laid back, supportive, um, and just, you know, a great team that we had to work with, positive attitudes, supporting each other, and just having a really good time while we're making this movie. And, you know, it's not always that you get the chance to be on a set like that, that is that supportive and, and positive. And so I, I really enjoyed the atmosphere that David Lipper brought to um, that, that set. And that's what makes it one of my favorites. That's awesome. That's awesome. The, the, you know, it is interesting to see because uh, I've been on productions as well, and it's very difficult to sort of when you're in it to know what maybe is going to happen, the end result. Um, and so sometimes it's like there are great experiences making, I don't want to say bad movies or bad TV, but like stuff that doesn't, it, isn't as successful as you'd like, right? Right. And then there's times where, you know, there's a horrible experience and yet it becomes a huge thing. <laughs> <laughs> that everybody connects with it's it's like as far as people on, on and i say when you know people like who don't really know how things work um what do you think are like some big misconceptions about how movies tv even theater is made and and the people about it the people inside of it I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that with working in the film industry, that it's all glitz and glam 
and super fun and everybody hanging out and parties and, you know, money thrown around and, and drugs and all that kind of stuff. I hear that all the time of, well, what did y'all do? Like, you know, whenever you're done filming, did y'all like go party every night? Did you get to go to so-and-so's house, you know, and all of that. And it's like, uh, no, uh, it's, it's extremely hard work. You are there for a lot of times, a minimum of 12 hours a day or up before the sun rises most of the time and you're home just in time to crash and there's no time to do anything else because if you don't sleep then you're not going to be able to do your job the next day and it's a lot of work because there's a lot of safety concerns there you know you have to let your actors concentrate and focus on their craft there's a lot of moving parts that are constantly going around and if you're working on something that's like a action adventure or stunts going on and, and that kind of thing, then it's a very serious atmosphere. And, you know, there's really not a lot of just commotion and everything. And it's, it's fun. Don't get me wrong, but it, the actual filming of films is nothing like what you see on screen when you go and actually see the movie in the theater or on your television screen the all the different stuff that's happening in the background is absolute chaos for at minimum 12 hours a day and everyone is just trying to do their job so they might get snippy with you um everybody's trying to focus and just make the best product possible and you have your ad who's trying to keep a schedule and keep everybody going and on task and so it's it's crazy it's absolute mayhem and so that people don't realize all of that that goes into all of that and all the different moving parts that make that little tiny 30 seconds that took probably two days to film in there. They don't, they don't know everything that, that you had to go through just to get that 30 seconds. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've been on, on stages where it takes like five hours to get, a minute worth of material right and mm -hmm. and it's not because people aren't doing their job everybody's doing their job it's just that's how long it takes and how mm -hmm. how many people it takes and it, it's it's it is an amazing thing to watch and be part of so um i understand the attraction of it um and it's a lot different than you know making movies and tv is is, is a lot different than doing plays right then because that's a that's a different sort of madness that goes on behind the screen behind the scenes there right <laughs> Oh yeah, definitely. You, <laughs> you know, the the bigger the show, the more talent you have on stage, then it's even crazier behind stage because you have all of that support going on backstage. That's constantly moving props, moving costumes, making sure that this person gets out of this costume so that they can turn around and get into this one and be back on stage in thirty seconds. And hey, you know, where is the cue for that light that's supposed to come down? And hey, where is that prop? It's not stage left. It's not here someone grab it anybody got eyes on that you know so it's it's just absolute chaos but it's, it's even worse than film though because you have a live audience and so there's <laughs> there's no room for error if that prop is not stage left by the time it's supposed to go on then you're screwed <laughs> if someone you know forgets their lines then it's either extremely obvious or you have people improvising on set because, or on the stage because you can't just say cut and let's go back to the top of that. You can't do that. And so there, there's even more pressure there. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a different sort of pressure and it's, uh, but it's exciting. Do you, is there one that you prefer over the other or do you just sort of like the balance of them? Um, if, if I am doing theater, I prefer to be on stage, uh, cause that's where, you know, my love of performance came from. If I'm doing film, I prefer to be directing first and foremost, um, but acting, of course, is my second favorite. And then script supervising would be my third favorite. Gotcha. Gotcha. So so what's happening now? What what can people look for right now if they want to see your work or what's coming out? OK, so uh, the, both Wire Room and um, Murder at Hollow Creek. Uh, should be coming out within the next year that we just filmed this year. And then also I have a project that we're about to start the crowdfunding platform for, and it's called Stalling Seasons with String. We have a Facebook page. It's Stalling Seasons with String. And so uh, beginning in August, we're going to post our crowdfunding platform on there to raise money for that project. We'll start doing some casting and, uh, you know, setting up our crew and, and all of that once we get that funding. Hopefully we can start filming that uh, by the end of the year or early next year. It's a great story. It's a tearjerker, but it's also funny. I, I, I wrote two different scripts. And one was a complete drama, like we talked about, that I absolutely love writing. And then the other was a comedy. And we merged the two together to lighten up the mood because they had the same theme. So why not, you know, combine the two and make them into one feature film instead of two shorter films? And it, the, the blending of that just has happened beautifully, like it was meant to be the entire time. And so I'm super excited about uh, that film that we have. We have some amazing talent that is going to be in this project. We, you know, can't really talk about who we have yet because we don't have our funding. Um, but we have some amazing talent that you are going to be very happy and surprised to see in this, uh, both in the secular genre and faith-based, uh, you know, areas for people. We have uh, someone who was one of the main characters in The Hunger Games um, that's going to be in the film. And then we have someone who was on Star Trek. So um, we have, you know, a very wide range of, of people that are going to be involved in this project. And we have some amazing kids that are in this that are just taking Hollywood by storm right now. Um, they are absolutely killing it. And so I'm so thrilled that they're going to be a part of our project. Uh, we did create a teaser for Stalling Seasons with String to be a part of our crowdfunding campaign. So if you go to the Facebook page for Stalling Seasons with String, you can find that teaser there. The actors who were in a teaser, of course, are not always the actors who are going to be in the final version. Uh, the two children that are in that uh, version are the kids who are going to play those kids. Um, but the rest of the talent is kind of stand-ins for, for the major talent that's going to come in and take on those roles. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely have a link to that in our show notes. And um, all right. So now that we found out uh, what you're working on, uh, Mike, I think I think she's ready for some some harder questions. Since the oh, no. Questions. Oh, yeah. Mike's just the cakewalk. He's the good cop. <laughs> you know, now you're meeting with me. 
So, are you ready for some awesome questions, I don't, Moran? I don't know. Now I'm nervous. <laughs> oh, as well, as well, you should be. You know, this is why we bring people on the show to do this kind of thing. <laughs> Let me ask you the first question. We start out fairly easy, and remember, when we say the word geek, we also it means what you're passionate about. Right. It's so it's basically you could be passionate about your film work or art or movies or music, whatever you know. And it's pretty awesome. And we've had celebrities do this. We've had filmmakers like yourself. We've had artists, musicians, other podcasters, or even just some of our listening audience have done it. Some have survived. Some have not. Oh, so no. See how you do. <laughs> All right, Lorianne. What was your favorite geek out moment? Oh, wow. Um I would have to say, and we've already talked about it, but it probably would be the fact that I got to sit down and have a conversation with Bruce Willis. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure. Wow. And that must have been amazing. And, you know, because this is somebody you've probably grew up with watching on TV and movies, and then you're sitting face-to-face with the man. It's it, pretty awesome. Exactly. I was absolutely blown away. I had already accepted the job before I even knew who I was going to work with, and I was sent the call sheet, and I was like, wait, who am I photographing? Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That is really awesome. Tell me about your most disappointing geek-out moment, though. <clears throat> I would have to say... Um, I was working for a local show here in Huntsville that's on um, a major network. And I was super excited to be able to work on the show because it was local. I could sleep in my own bed at night. And it was just the perfect opportunity for me to work in the film industry and, and not have to be on the road. And it was one of the most toxic atmospheres that I had ever um had to be a part of and I literally would leave crying some days because of the mistreatment that I received um, from oh wow you know these producers that you know had maybe three credits to their name on IMDB and I'm like have you looked at my IMDB do, do you know who I am really um, I mean not to be arrogant in any way but it, it was just very disheartening that people felt the need to be so abusive and I was just super disappointed that you know I had to leave that show because because of that atmosphere no totally understandable I'm sure it's been disappointing when you've had to experience that mm -hmm. what kicks you out the most I think what geeks me out the most is taking something that I've written on paper that came from my own brain and then taking all the moving parts, which would be the actors and um, creating that story and just watching it come to life in front of me. Um, Cause you know, it, it's here and it's on paper, but seeing it actually come to life and you can see it in front of you be birthed into something that it wasn't before um, for me, that's like one of the most amazing things that any creator can experience. No, it totally makes sense. I'm sure it, it's, it's amazing when you, you say you birth something, a show, a script, a podcast, a comic book, you know, 
whatever, and this is mine. People are listening or watching or viewing or reading. Right. It is one of the best feelings in the whole wide world. Exactly. That's pretty awesome. What turns your geek off? Disrespect and arrogance, for sure. No, totally makes sense. And there's a lot of out of it nowadays, which is really sad. Unfortunately. I agree. What fictional character would you like to meet the most? Oh, oh my gosh. Um, that's a hard one because most of them I have met that I love. Um, <laughs> isn't that crazy that, you know, most of the characters that I love most I've got to actually meet in real life? Um, I think it's awesome. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I think the the fictional character that I would most like to meet that I have not met already because I've met um, I've been very blessed that I've met a lot of them. Um, but one that I've never met that I've always wanted to meet was Rebecca from the Vampire Diaries, uh, played by, Cla- oh. by Claire Holt. I absolutely mm-hmm. love her. I adore her. I've met and worked with um, some of the other people on the show, but I never got the opportunity to meet her. Um, she was both in Vampire Diaries and the originals, of course. Um, and so I just, I adore her and I think she's amazing and I would love to just, you know, have lunch with her. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. What fictional character would you not like to meet, though? I would not like to meet Satan from The Devil's Advocate. Oh, very good. Wow. <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. The Devil's Advocate is one of my favorite movies, but that guy, he just creeps me out. And I know that I'll just be manipulated by him in some way. And so definitely don't want to come across this path. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. <laughs> What is your favorite geek word, phrase, quote, or pose? We're making you think on this one. I know. (laughs) I told you we're not like any other interview you've ever had. (laughs) The first thing that comes to mind is work smarter, not harder. um, Because I, I deal with it a lot in... I work with a lot of people who don't have a lot of experience in the industry and they want to do these grand amazing things um but they they don't know how and they don't necessarily have the resources and so therefore it's going to end up being harder on them to accomplish what they want to accomplish when well actually have the solution over here that is easy peasy and it gives you exactly what you want but without all that time and effort put into it to where you get the accolades for look what I did, um, but you still get what you want. And the majority of the time, they're like, "No, I, I I have my heart set on building this set or you know whatever." And I'm like, "Why?" And so I'm always saying it. I'm always saying it when I'm working with other directors and producers. Work smarter, not harder. No, awesome, and it's words to live by, actually. <laughs> It is really worse to live by. What is your ideal geek occupation? What I'm doing. What I do in my industry. That is awesome. <laughs> um, I, like I said, I cannot imagine doing anything else in this world, being able to work with amazing people and creating content that either 
brings of a message of positivity or encouragement or hope or a laugh to you when you need it at most. Um, it, I, I am absolutely blessed to be able to do what I do. And I wish everybody could do what I do because I don't work. I have fun creating. That is awesome. That is really awesome. But let's look at the flip side of that one. What geek occupation would you not like to do? I would prefer not to be a plumber. <laughs> That's so true. You're covered in it, literally. <laughs> that is awesome. That's awesome. I like that a lot. All right, Lorianne, are you ready for your final question in the geek seat? I am ready. We've been building towards this, so this is pretty major, so okay. think of it this way. Okay. And anything goes on this question. Just remember that. What is your ultimate geek fantasy? My ultimate geek fantasy is to be recognized... Uh, everywhere that I go <laughs> and to have my movies in theaters and um, be somebody that's sought after on, you know, a much greater level than I am now, not for the fame of it, not for the money of it, but just the recognition of that, I am talented in what I do and people, you know, recognize that and support me. Um, I'm not a person who really needs accolades, but I deep down, I will admit I am someone who desires to be recognized for the hard work that I put into things. I love it. That is awesome. Well, Lauren, I've got some great news for you. What's that? You've made it through the Geek Seat. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. Mr. Mike Gordon, tell the young lady what she's won. You have won a lifetime subscription to the ESO Network, a value easily worth $88.04. Hey, we've gone up. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, they, you know, could change tomorrow. Who knows? Um, awesome. It has been amazing to have you join us uh, for those people who may want to follow you what you're doing uh get involved with the project where should they go online to follow you okay well um you can find me on my imdb which is laura and heat and gray to cap you know catch up on all the different projects that i've worked on i'm working on currently or i'm about to work on uh, again you can find me on my production page which is Excelsior Studios. We're on Facebook, Instagram, on TikTok. Um, I am musically Laura Ann on TikTok. I have about 45,000 followers, almost 2 million likes on that account. Um, again, that's musically Laura Ann. That's where I post all my really fun stuff. Um, <laughs> and then um, on, uh, uh, remember to, follow the stalling seasons with string page as well right we will do that we will have links to all those in our show notes and people can check it out thank you so much for your time today oh thank you so much it's been a lot of fun awesome let's take a quick break and we will be back in a moment and we are going to be all talking about the art of neil adams 
will take is just one moment and you can say goodbye to how- Hi, this is Ashley Pauls with this week's Box Office Buzz. The night I'm recording this is 4th of July here in the U.S., so I apologize if you hear the sound of fireworks exploding in the background, but it is what it is, so I'm just going to go ahead and press on. I have been having so much fun this summer movie season. I feel like there have been so many good movies to go out and see, and I actually just got back from seeing a movie called Mr. Malcolm's List. It's a period drama sort of in a Jane Austen setting. And even though the story is, you know what, it's fairly predictable what you get with these romantic period dramas, but it was still a lot of fun. It kind of capitalizes on period dramas, I think, having a moment right now with shows like Bridgerton, an increase of interest in the time period. So if you like period dramas, I highly recommend that one. And it's going to be a big week for Marvel fans. That's right, Thor Love and Thunder is almost here. I'm excited for the movie, just a little bit hesitant because what I've seen from the trailers, I worry that this movie will have the same problem that Thor Ragnarok had, at least for me, and that it crosses the boundary into being too silly like there's just so much goofy humor that none of the more serious emotional moments land and I've seen some stuff in the trailers that makes me worried that this movie may not be as much for me but you know what again it's Marvel not every single thing has to appeal to me personally and I'm going to give it a fair chance there's a lot of other great movies in the theater if you get a chance over the next couple weeks the Elvis movie is great a more stylized version of history but wonderful music and acting it's great to see i'm also looking forward to the movie mrs harris goes to paris another period drama about a woman who decides she's going to go to france and buy herself a fancy dress so again yeah it's just great to be back at the movies and have a lot to choose from and of course a wealth of content on streaming haven't even touched on ms marvel stranger things or the Umbrella Academy. I'm so far behind, but you know what? This is a good problem to have, and I think we're really blessed as geeks to have so much good content to keep us entertained. That's it for this week. If you're looking for more entertainment-related content, be sure to check out my blog over on the ESO Podcast website. In the Cosmic Pizza Podcast, your pizza delivery guys, Dan, Sean, and Paul, serve you a slice of life. We talk to women in comedy, voice actors, film directors and producers, authors. We also talk about conspiracy theories, the Muppets, our top three films of the decades, famous people we confuse with each other, and our favourite stand-up comedians. We have recast Star Trek The Original Series and Babylon 5, and created our alternative superheroes. But most of all, we have had so much fun doing it every two weeks. Two weeks! Cosmic Pizza Podcast is not about the cosmos or about pizza. Welcome back to Earth Station One. Now it is time for us to talk all about Neil Adams. To many, he ushered in a new era of artwork for comics, and he was the master of more realistic superheroes and uh, comic images for many of years. And even when he left DC and Marvel behind him when on his own, he did some amazing work. 
and it's going to be a ton of fun to talk all about him. But sadly, we lost him earlier this year, so it's only appropriate that you know we take a little time for the artist spotlight. So let's take a look at Neil Adams, Mr. Mike. Absolutely, yeah. Unfortunately, this has not been a great year uh, for American comic artists, especially of the legendary nation uh, nature. But um, and Neil Adams, uh, yes, definitely has a place in that pantheon of of legends of American comic book art. Um, we've got a great crew here to talk all about Neil Adams. Uh, our old friend Michael Bailey is back with us, and I mean old as in we've known you for a long time. Not that you are yourself old. Uh, it's it, both work. I'm I'm okay with either one at this point. Well, if you if you had a video feed of tonight's podcast you'd see four guys here with gray beards yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's right distinguished beards distinguished beards Mm -hmm. uh but it's good to have you with us michael we appreciate it uh we also have with us uh artist alan ow barnes alan it's been too long since you've been on the show and unfortunately well this is a not a sad occasion correct no, no, no. It's, it's it's always wonderful to talk about Neil Adams. Although I will say that I I mostly come on in your show when somebody dies. So yeah, that that's something. We gotta we gotta fix that. We gotta make sure you are on when when to to celebrate someone's life uh, as they are currently, rather than just uh, yes. So we don't we want can't, you, we, we can't change Alan's name to Alan Grim Reaper Barnes. You yeah, know? <laughs> we, we don't want we don't want Alan's appearance to be the death knell of uh, of artists or anybody else we spotlight. So, but it's it's good to have you join us as well, uh, guys. I'm going to start off uh, just with um, let's reminisce about what our first experience, our initial experience uh, introduction was to Neil's work. Um, Alan, we'll start with you. What uh, do you remember the first time you ever? consciously recognize neil's work i actually do and uh and and it's it's jumping way ahead in the uh in the neil adams conversation because the first book that i bought from neil that i thought that that i recognized his work was actually armor which is one of his uh continuity comics oh, and wow. then i realized okay. then i realized afterward that it was uh it was the same guy that i loved from all those batman issues <laughs> gotcha gotcha so yeah that was a little bit later and and to be fair, I, I think I'm in, in that boat as well. I think when I was looking at Neil Adams' work, at least for the first, you know, decade or so of my life or whenever I was reading books, I didn't realize who I was, who I was seeing. Um, I, it, was t- it didn't take me – it took me a little while to find out, like, to figure out, like, oh, to associate artists with the art that I was seeing. Sure. Um, and I, I didn't know if that was earlier for you because you were interested in, in, in art from an early age? Yeah, but but when Armor came out, I was about 10. So, okay, uh, okay. So, right. so, yes, very much. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, Michael Bailey, what about you? What um, Do you recall um, your first experience with recognizing Neil's work? With recognizing would have to be the greatest Batman stories ever told uh, okay. when I was about 14. But it made me realize that some of the first Batman comics I ever read in... Batman from the 30s to the 70s were Neil Adams as well. So it's it's like like I, I experienced it when I was when I was first starting to read, and then it was only later that I recognized, oh, this is that guy's name. Mm-hmm. And from there, uh, it was just you know he's he was a legend, so that's how he always kind of lived in my mind. Uh, but it was yeah, it was the uh, that Two Face story that they reprinted. 
mm-hmm. uh, that I first really associated. Okay, this is Neil Adams, and this is what it looks like. Gotcha, gotcha. Mike, what about you? Um, for me, it was right around the same time uh, Mike Bailey did. It was the greatest Batman stories from the 30s to the 70s. And I also got at the same time the greatest Superman stories from the 30s to the 70s. And I noticed there was this one artist in both it, you know, books that you know had the same kind of style. And I had to probably be 10 years old or something. And it was I was just fascinated because the superheroes didn't look cartoony. They looked like real people. And it was, of course, the uh, Batman story for me, it was Night of the Reaper. And it was just an amazing story. And it was it was just awesome because, you know, growing up Jewish, it, you know, touched home because of the SS and everything like that and you know the holocaust story that tied into it but then it was also in superman the superman the world without kryptonite Mm -hmm. and that was just and also another great issue and it had the fantastic uh, cover of superman breaking the chains on the cover Mm -hmm. and it was it was just it was just awesome and i couldn't get enough of neil adams from that point on and i think within the next within the year, next year or so someone introduced me to the kree scroll war with the avengers mm. and it was just you know from there i i became a fan and i tried to find everything that neil was doing all through my teenage years and you know good at getting trades when they started coming out or back issues because back then you could buy neil adams back issues for 50 in 50 cent boxes or at yard sales or you know and stuff like that and i was able to pick up like his run of avengers or his run of you know superman and batman and then of course the giant size superman versus muhammad ali Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. also and so yeah there's just so much to talk about yeah yeah um for me it, it's a it's a little murky i mean my memories from that time period are kind of murky anyway but um but i do recall my my first love of batman and comics was not neil adams but someone an artist who i think was a contemporary but really um road i think off of we'll say um adams's wake which was uh jim aparo Mm -hmm. um you know i i think they're they're different in their own right and one of these days we're going to do a jim aparo episode i swear uh oh i can't wait for that that's gonna be um if we haven't already because we may have done one already actually now i think about it but um anyway uh not to diminish jim in any way but um I do. The first time I remember seeing uh, a Batman story by Neil, I thought it was Jim. And I was like, man, Jim's like work is really like, like got an, another depth to it in this story. And it was in the best of DC volume two uh, or number two, uh, which has had a great Batman cover, painted cover. Um, and uh, in it was a bunch of reprints. And one of the stories that was reprinted was uh, turns out to be now one of my favorite uh joker batman stories because it's i was always attracted to batman and joker stories uh and this one is one of the best it's the joker's five-way revenge 
uh, by Denny O'Neill. And it was the first time I really kind of acknowledged both Denny and Neil, which is kind of appropriate considering their history. Um, but that story is just unbelievably amazing. Um, was far out my, the, my favorite story in that collection. I don't actually own a lot of Neil Adams work um, on Batman by itself. Um, although I am a huge fan of Brave and the Bold. Again, my love for Jim Aparo comes from, uh, comes out of that a lot too, but Neil did a lot of the covers, uh, and a lot of work for Brave and the Bold, but I didn't get those issues or appreciate that work until much later, till much, much later. So, um, um, so recognizing, you know, Neil as a amazing artist at, at the time, I mean, I think it's hard for us to, I mean, I, I don't really, it's hard for me to distinguish like, I knew that the Batman I was reading the comics was different than the one I saw on the syndicated Batman 60 series, as well as on the super friends. And I have to say, even though I enjoyed those depictions a lot, as well as the other animated series that were, that came out at the time uh, with Batmite and all of that, the filmation stuff, I, I was attracted most to the comic book version of Batman. And that's where I think my real love for the character came out of, um, and, and Neil Adams obviously is a big part of that because, you know, prior to his working on that Batman, my understanding is, is that, you know, it was pretty much cartoony. Um, and I don't mean that any disrespect when I say that, but it was much less, as Mike put it, like realistic, uh, much less dark um, in terms of the way the stories were written as well as uh, as illustrated. Um but I don't think um, I realized the significance because I didn't have anything to really, it wasn't like a shock to me that it was like that. It was just like that. <laughs> That's all it sure. was. I didn't know there was anything before that. Um, did you guys experience that as well? Or was it something that you kind of uh, came to know later on? Uh, Michael Bailey, what, 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 what is your take on that? It, it, it's something that I, that I came to recognize later on because you know, when you, when you're like, for example, when you're reading from the thirties to the seventies or the greatest Batman stories ever told, right. You're, you're going through a lot of art styles. You're, you know, you're going through the Bob Kane and the Bob King ghost artists, uh, you know, like Jerry Robinson and Sheldon Moldoff and all that. But it's not really until you start reading the Batman issues before Neil Adams and then see him come on and realize that he took, he didn't really draw the character any differently. He didn't redesign the costume. He didn't read it. You know, he didn't like top to bottom, like, you know, he, he did, he did slowly raise the ears. Yes. Right? <laughs> but, but it's not like, it's not like Jim Lee with the new 52 where he comes in or, or post 1994 where they would get Batman a new costume every five years or so. Right. Uh, you know, for me, it was the cape. And if you look at like Carmine Infantino's Batman and uh, going to get this wrong. Bob Brown is the artist. I think Bob Brown was an artist or was he a writer? No, he was an artist. If you look at like his Batman, the cape didn't seem to really go with any kind of laws of physics. <laughs> Like, like it, when it would billow, it would just kind of be, it looked like just put just two balloons under it and it was just raising it a little bit. Whereas because Adams was inspired by Christopher Lee in the Hammer Horror films 
and how Christopher Lee treated his cape, the costume suddenly took on this whole new dimension to it. And kind of with Robin too. I think, I think Adams was one of the really set the, the bar of making that costume look three dimensional instead of looking like it was all one piece. Suddenly you saw that, Oh, this is several layers of clothing built on, you know, that's on top of each other. And the artists that followed him, like Rich Buckler and, uh, George Perez and all that kind of ran with that. But yeah, it's just, it's just when you, he says he didn't draw it any different. He just brought some realism to it. I think that's one of the few times where Neil Adams was getting his importance <laughs> to, to comics. <laughs> cause usually yeah. it's, it's the opposite of that. <laughs> I think also, uh, cause I've heard that as well about the, the Christopher Lee model that he, uh, you know, looked at um, and used, I think also he's like really the first one to give sort of Bruce, especially in the Batman suit, like cheekbones, like severe, yeah. like Christopher Lee, like cheekbones. Right. Because uh, that's that's what really stands out to me as well, is that his face looks I mean, he's not smiling. No. <laughs> that's that's a big difference, too. He's not a Batman who smiles much. I mean, he's in he's intense and he's he's out to get you um, as opposed to like, you know, the the Adam West Batman. Right. Yeah, no, I'll I'll agree with that. And and he brought a dimension to the to the villains. You mentioned the Joker's five way revenge. Oh. Like he made the Joker sinister again yeah. for the first time in decades. He gave him sideburns, which is a little weird to look at now. But <laughs> but he he made that and he made Two Face malevolent. I mean, it's just like every character he touched, and it's just so funny of of the back door he got into. As you mentioned, he drew those Brave and the Bold. He drew Brave and the Bold because Julia Schwartz wouldn't let him draw Batman. He starts right. drawing Brave and the Bold for Murray Boltonoff. And suddenly everyone's asking Julie, why isn't Batman looking as good as in Brave and the Bold? <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like, well, I guess we got to bring him in now. Yeah, yeah. Because when he first goes to work for DC, and we're not going to do the Wikipedia bio on him or anything like that. I mean, he's working in comic strips for i think that he starts out in comic strips a little bit and then he goes to uh then he goes to doing his first work in dc and i think that was in the late 60s uh the first uh i think title character a superhero character that he gets is dead man mm-hmm. which right. man that stuff going back and looking that is like really outstandingly amazing yeah, he, I can't imagine a more perfect artist for Dead Man than him. Oh, it was amazing, and how he drew the pain that you saw in Boston Brand almost in every issue. It was just, mm-hmm. it was just outstanding, and you know, to give it like even to a Bruce Lee type feel to the story with the characters, you know, when he travels to Asia and everything, it's just, it's just amazing the stories that he did. And the man with the the hook hand, taken almost like right from you know the fugitive type yeah. thing. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Alan, have you gone back and looked at um, a lot of his? Obviously, since you know you started with the continuity, you've gone and back. And how far back have you gone in Neil's sort of resume uh, back oh, to his uh, older work? Uh, pr- pretty far back. Um, you know, uh, some good friends of mine do uh, do a newspaper strip. And one time we were talking about uh, how Neil Adams got to start in uh, in the strips, 
And so I actually have gone back and checked out some of the uh, Bat Masterson stuff that he uh, he wasn't he wasn't the primary artist on that. He was the assistant on mm-hmm. that to Howard Nordstrom. And uh, Neil himself says that one of his uh, great joys in his life, like like he he felt he had made it when he uh, ghosted for Al Williamson on Buck Rogers. Wow, you know. So, so that's all that stuff is, 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 is super important to everything. But, but some of the stuff that I found really interesting, you know, was his Ben Casey work. Ben Casey is the strip that he actually did himself. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know if you've ever seen any of, any of that, but um, it's really where he puts together everything you guys are talking about. He did all kinds of crazy um, photo referencing in that. And that really wasn't being done to that extent in, uh, in, in comics. Uh, in comic strips, I mean, and um, and you know that that's where he really developed that whole like um, trying to be as expressive as he is. I've heard Neil say in an interview that he believes that the reason that he was uh, able to do the superhero stuff as well as he did was because he understood how to do Bigfoot cartooning and Littlefoot cartooning, and he was bringing a lot of that expressiveness from Bigfoot cartooning to a more realistic attitude which i think is where some of the more some of the other realistic guys fall short is they don't know how to uh be as expressive yeah and and there's a there's a sense of motion with his exactly with his work that a lot of other realistic or some other realistic artists we should say like look like they're posing as opposed to being caught in (laughs) midair like in mid-leap that's exactly right Um, I have not seen a lot of his uh, strip work. I've seen samples of his Ben Casey for a while, uh, a bit. And I do say, and, and Micah talked about his uh, Muhammad Ali Superman issue too. His, his uh, ability to, to replicate likenesses of actors, yes. personalities, whatever was pretty amazing as well. Totally. And uh, I, I think that, you know, I, like I said, I don't know Ben Casey extremely well, but, you know, you just sort of look at that and go, OK, that that's a character that that's a, that's based on an actor. That's based on a character uh, you can kind of he gives. And, and I think that's true of his comic work, too, because even those he, he might have used people in his head as models or, or even real models as well. But you get the sense that they're not just faces. They're right. people. In his yeah, totally. in his in his stories, the characters are people. Oh, mm-hmm. his 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 Raish Raz Raish. Oh, however yes. you want to argue what, what, about it. What, what, what is the ESO correct pronunciation <laughs> of that? Of that to me right now. Whatever you like. Yeah. All right. Cool. Just checking. Just checking. But you know that's obviously Christopher Lee. I mean, yes, it, it, sure. you know, it's 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 there's there's some makeup, quote unquote, on there. But yeah, he was supposed to be Christopher Lee. I mean, it's it's, it's and I, I think. When you look at his superhero work, we've been focusing on Batman and we mentioned Dead Man, but, you know, here's a guy that said, okay, I'm coming to Marvel. I don't want to draw the Avengers right away. I'm going to draw the X-Men. And he comes on and he does, like, some of the best-looking X-Men work of that pre-Claremont, you know, giant-sized era. So good, so good they canceled the series. It was awesome. Yeah, it's... it's, (laughs) I think both Roy and Neil have mentioned that it would have taken like a miracle even to, to, to get them because it was on the way out when they were, when Neil came onto it, but it's like he and, 
Jim Steranko were kind of having fun being the hot young, you know, jet jockeys, so to speak, of the comic book world. They were the first really kind of personalities to come into it uh, that we would see to maybe not the better effect in the 90s um, <laughs> of having artists be like the draw of the book instead of, you know, just the character. But Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Um, oh, that yes. was such a classic series right there. Yeah, we, we, we need to pause and talk about it for a minute. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Yes. I, I, yeah, I was not going to let this go longer, much longer without <laughs> us talking about Green Lantern and Green Arrow, um, which I did not read as it came out, obviously. Uh, when you were way out. too young, dude. I was way too young for that, but um, I didn't even read it for the longest time. Uh, I didn't get a chance to uh, until they put it out as an absolute a um, number of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I had the uh, fortunate luck of, 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 ha- of being at um, SE Comic Con with that, with that book and both Neil and uh denny were there and i had him sign it and they talked about it and it was it was awesome i read it and i was it you know i was it's not one of those things you read and you go oh i guess i could see where that was okay at the time or whatever it's still powerful it's still very powerful not only in its message and its subject matter but its storytelling the it's just there are pages on there that i i won't forget ever the way that the layout the layouts are um, it's just an amazing, amazing piece of work. Probably sure. more worth, uh, you know, having an absolute edition than almost anything else maybe Neil has done, if I mm-hmm. may be so bold to say that. That was such an amazing run, too. It's, you know, was one of the first DC Comics from the, you know, when they created the comic code that was not approved by the comic code. Right. And it was because of the drug issues, you know, having speedy, you know, Green Arrow's kid assistant being a heroin addict. And, you know, it was it was pretty amazing. And you also got in that era, you know, the road trip across America. And also you got it introduced to John Stewart was introduced mm-hmm. in that yep. era too. Yep. And so it was it was just an amazing, amazing run. And, you know, because you know, you had the reinvention of Green Arrow real right before this you know going from the batman ripoff with a bow and arrow to basically becoming his own character becoming the liberal crusader as they like Mm -hmm. to call him you know looking like more like robin hood and you know being a little more serious and it was pretty awesome you know, speaking of him being uh, the liberal uh, and uh, one of the most amazing things about that series looking back today is the idea that Green Lantern was the staunch conservative and Green Arrow was the liberal and they were best friends. I wonder when that's ever going to happen again. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, right, 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 right. yeah, I mean, I mean it, it's, it's a fair point, though, because when you I first read those in in 94, uh, I, I was I was going to college and. There was this co- this shop in Allentown, Pennsylvania, that the back part of it was like off, like like if you wanted a CD that you couldn't buy at a normal CD shop, it was going to be there. Like right. it, they they had indie stuff and they had imports, but the front of it was a comic shop, and it was mostly trade paperbacks. Now in '94, trades were not a big deal, so the fact. Mm. 
that they were able to fill as much of the space as they were with them uh, was kind of amazing. And they had both of the hard traveling hero traits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the great thing about those is that they have Bob Dylan quotes mm-hmm. uh, between them, which is probably the better soundtracks to that. Uh, but it, but it was really funny because I thought the entire thing was going to be them traveling across America. And I was shocked to find that that's like barely half of the yeah. run. It's like they're, they're, they're done with their trip pretty quick. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but yeah, when yeah. Look- I thought that was the whole thing too. I was, when I, when you read it, I think you'd be very surprised. Everything that you hear about it is, is like, there's a lot of hype about it and I'm not saying it's not warranted, because just like the the sort of um, drug addiction line, there's the you know um, there's the racist uh, elements to it. That's the, the famous panel mm-hmm. where the uh, the old uh, African American gentleman is mm-hmm. is calling out uh, Green Lantern for you know only protecting the the white skins and not the other mm-hmm. color skins, or maybe even you know the blue skins, everything except everything, everything except for them. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and it's just uh, it's just amazing. I mean, those two guys. Uh, cause I don't think you can have, I mean, it's not just Neil and it's not just Denny, but it's them together right. putting this beautiful thing together. Um, and, and Neil in particular, you know, I, I think before this, Michael, you can check me, uh, Michael Bailey, you could check me on this, uh, please. Uh, but my understanding is before this green arrow is just a Batman, oh, like one, yes. right Very much. now, I mean, Neil makes him kind of a Robin Hood wannabe, an updated Robin Hood, but like, mm. but with much more of a, a liberal stance. And uh, I also think that Black Canary as a character is very interesting in this series. I don't mm-hmm. think she gets enough uh, uh, sort of prominence in the series, uh, at least as far as her role in it. And there are some things that are still a little problematic, sure. But um, I think she is a, a like a third character that's not on the title, but is just as vital to this run. Yeah, oh, I, very much so. I mean, the great thing about what they did with Green Arrow is that they set him up as the guy that delivers the speeches. I mean, he's the one that calls up the Guardians at the end of 76. Mm. But when you get to the my ward is a junkie, uh, snowbirds don't fly. I think was one of the story titles. It's mm. basically because he was ignoring his his son that yeah. Roy got addicted, and his his reaction was to act like what you would think a strong conservative was. He was kicking him out. He was thrown. And then it was only later that he realized, you know, like, oh, I bear some responsibility for this because well, I've, duh, been out, <laughs> I, I've been running around and just leaving this kid to the, you know, the wolves, essentially. And then he kills the guy uh, when it when it because because the great thing about Green Lantern, I've always found, is that he's very much the traditional friend. As in, you know, when he's got his own title, he's okay. But when he doesn't, he's bunking at somebody else's house. So he, you know, he was the backup for Flash for a while, uh, both alone and with Green Arrow. And the story of him killing the, the, the criminal accidentally and then going off and living it like a monastery. Uh, and he is also responsible for the first Elliot S. Magan written comic uh what can one man do uh with uh him thinking about running for for mayor mayor. 
Yeah. Right. And it was basically a Elliot tells the story. He's just like, I wrote it as a school, pro, as a school paper. He gave me a B. I don't think I deserved that. So I sent it to uh, Julius Schwartz. He didn't want, he didn't do anything with it. Neil picked it up, said, if you buy this, I'll draw it. And that's how it got made. <laughs> that's, hilarious. that's hilarious. I have no idea. You know, uh, the, uh, that story and some of the green, green lantern, green arrow stuff. Uh, I actually read when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 in some of those mini digest size mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. books. Yeah, the uh well as I mentioned the the uh Joker's two-way revenge I I uh I read in the digest as well which looking back on it now I'm like this is so wrong for Neil's work like there's a presentation of Neil's artwork it's so yeah, sure. like I tell you what getting the uh the Green Arrow Green uh, Lantern series uh in absolute is gorgeous yeah. um and I've been collecting the uh Neil Adams Batman library as well um and which by the way some of those volumes are getting stupidly expensive so please people like let that go um anyway um uh although all of that stuff has been recolored yes (laughs) and in some cases redrawn (laughs) yeah because uh neil is a uh perfectionist and uh he i don't think he thinks very much of the colors uh the way his uh his artwork was colored over the years um but it also probably has to do with that you know continuity his company likes uh, like it makes money coloring things too so um so he gets a little bit of work that way um all right let's talk about um some of the work that he does afterwards um i don't know if there's anything that you guys want to bring up about his actual comic work um sort of uh after the late 1970s after superman versus Muhammad ali and i don't want to skip past that but if you guys want to mention something about that because because then he goes over to he forms his own company and then he's doing comic work but he's also doing a lot of corporate work right mm-hmm. i remember well, ms mystic absolutely yeah. the, the thing that we probably need to mention regarding this related to still the dc stuff though is the crusty bunkers Okay, true. I'm seeing Very blank true. stairs. Okay. No. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I, yeah, I, I'm a blank stare. I'm not really. I, sure am, that's I am a definite blank stare. Um. <laughs> okay, so so at continuity, uh, he was mentoring a bunch of the younger artists that were coming in and doing DC and Marvel work, and uh, what they would do is uh, they would they would help each other out. Like he would he would do these like uh, both pep talks and then like do these little training have these little training conversations with the guys. But one of the big things that he would do is if somebody was running behind on a job, especially an inking job, they would just put all of the pages, all the penciled pages that they had on like a series of tables. And everyone in the office, when they came by, they'd ink a little bit. And somebody else would come by and they'd ink a little bit. And uh, whenever whenever they had to credit that work, uh, they simply called it the Krusty Bunkers. So if you ever see an inking job by C Bunkers or the Krusty Bunkers, that's what was going on. Is it's everybody in continuity just kind of inking a little bit at a time. Interesting, interesting. I do think it's yeah. Uh, continuity is is not just his sort of uh, way of making money, but it's also his way of directly mentoring it. And obviously, we have so many examples of uh, indirect. Uh, mentorships, people taking sort of his style and running with it. Uh, both companies, uh, I believe, uh, the big two, uh, Marvel and DC, are doing that. Um, 
But uh, I also want to step away just for a minute on his uh, about his the stuff that he was doing in comics to because it's right around this time, right? 1977, 78, where right. Neil gets involved with artist credit issues, right? Where he mm-hmm. yep. he's he's like uh, and, and Michael Bailey, I'll pro- you would probably know a lot more about this than I do, but this is where this is where he particularly gets on the side of the Superman creators, right? So, uh, when it was announced that they were going to make this multi-million dollar Superman film, Jerry Siegel wrote this two-page single-spaced letter, both sides, uh, and sent it to, like, every newspaper in the country, and most people just ignored it, but he basically, I put a curse on the Superman (laughs) film, um, because they weren't getting any. Now... There is a very nuanced conversation to be had about how much Siegel and Schuster were screwed over. Um, because on one hand, yes, they were taken advantage of. On the other hand, at one point in the early 40s, they were making like forty, fifty thousand $50,000 a year. So, which in the early 1940s was a lot of money. So, but they weren't making anything. And after around 66 or so Siegel and Schuster tried to sue again. And Siegel was writing for DC at that time. And when he launched his, his latest lawsuit, they fired him. So he's living in California. Um, You know, he's got a heart problem and he really wants to get respect. And because they were willing to fight, Neil stepped in and he really kind of rallied the artistic community around him. We got Jerry Robinson involved. They were on like the tomorrow show with Tom Snyder. That tape, by the way, is mysteriously gone. Hmm. That episode is one of the few episodes of the tomorrow show. Mysteriously that they, that there is no copy of, um, I don't know if the Tomorrow Show was owned by Warner Brothers, <laughs> mm. but, but he was the one that really fought with them. And, you know, he he was their intermediary. He talked with Warner Brothers uh, legal side and the corporate side. And he's the one that basically got them not only the creator credit, which was missing for decades, uh, they started out getting $10,000 a year and medical benefits. And that went up with the cost of living over the decades until they, they passed away. So to, to, to understate, if you listen to interviews with Neil, and this isn't like a knock on the guy, Neil really will tell you what is great about Neil. Um, and I kind of, Kind of appreciate that because you know nobody's going to talk you up, so you're going to have to talk yourself up. Sure. I mean, we're talking about a man that randomly gave me life advice the one time I met him. So you know, I just can't, <laughs> I just can't hate the guy. But this is one of those times where I'm like, yeah, he was the guy that that really stepped up, and he was the one ferrying them around New York City and getting them mm-hmm. on the talk shows and getting, like I said. Uh, the artistic community together to rally behind him. And, and because of that, when you went to see Superman, the movie in 1978, prominently in the credits, 
were created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and they were at the premiere in Washington, D.C. I think it was the first time ever in anything live action or animated for Superman that they had been credited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Um, okay. Kind of once, but you would have had to watch the 1975 version of It's a Bird, It's a and on ABC TV. Oh, gotcha. Uh, because there's this scene towards the middle where these two guys walk up to Superman and he's like, my name's Jerry and I just want to watch, I just want to write stories about you. And my name's <laughs> Joe and I just want to draw stories yeah, about you. Yeah. That's not the same yeah. thing. Yeah, it's not the same thing, but it's just like, it's one of the first times that they got any kind of credit, uh, at least of all in the comics, because man, those people shut those guys out. Uh, but yeah. no, it, and, and that's why you can't, I mean, I understand what you were saying about Neil and I've met him a couple times and I know people who've met him and have had, let's just say mixed <laughs> encounters <laughs> with him. Uh, some very positive, some not so much. Um, but Neil is Neil is Neil, right? He doesn't, mm-hmm. he doesn't put on any pretense. Um, and he's not afraid to, like you said, he's not afraid to like tell you what things he's done and what things, you know, he's responsible for. And I think, Part of that is because he was in an industry that didn't pat you on the back, Mm -hmm. that did everything they could to screw you out of those pats on the back and credits. And I think he was like one of those guys, one of those guys that said, you know, no, this is I'm I'm not doing that. I'm not going to play that way. Um, I I am who I am. And I did these things and I'm going to be recognized for doing these things. I mean, think about how influential he is as a Batman artist. And then count the actual number of Batman stories he drew. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's the, not all that many. It, no, it's, many. It, it can. It, everyone they have to fill out those trades with covers. <laughs> <laughs> they do. You're right. You're right. The, the three so, Batman books that I have are, are very. You'd think they would be like a huge library, but it's very, very small. And he's the one that in like the, the late sixties and early seventies was like, well, we're going to color this way. And everyone kept telling him, no, you can't do that. And then he showed them how to do it. And yeah, the he specific was really, thing was a limitation on the number of colors. He brought up yes. the number of colors. Right. And he, I mean, this is nothing against the artists that came before him. I mean, you're never going to see somebody that say, man, that Gil Kane was a piker. He, he just didn't know what he was doing because right, that's right. obviously wrong. <laughs> but when you look at Gil Kane's dynamic Green Lantern and then you see Neil Adams, you see a transition into a new generation. Uh, and it's the I same agree. with his Batman. Like Carmine Infantino's Batman run is great. They're fun stories. The art is very lively because Carmen Infantino could design the hell out of a page. Mm-hmm. But then you get into the Neil Adams stuff and the, I think, uh, you know, you mentioned Jim Aparo. I think Irv Novick is criminally underrated as a Batman artist. Um, and you see like this whole new generation of Batman that we have not gotten away from. No, no, you're absolutely right. <laughs> No, very much so. And it's, it's, you could see the styles carried over. And, you know, when you think of Superman, you know, most people think Kurt Swan from the Silver Age. And, you know, but you also think Neil Adams because of the covers and, you sure. know, all the big things that he did. But same thing, he did not do a ton of Superman, right? Either. 
No, and he uh, he very famously did not like his cover to Superman number two thirty three, uh, <laughs> even though it's one of the most iconic. I mean, I've got a tin sign of it like right in front of me right now, but he hated how he did the chains. So years later, there's an action comics cover that has him doing the same thing, just different. Because you know, it, this is the thing about Neil is that the, I. I agree. My co-host over on Overlook Dark Knight, uh, Andrew Leyland, he grew up in in the UK, and he discovered Neil Adams through the black and white reprints mm-hmm. of like the Superhero Illustrated and Titan Books put out a bunch of trade paperbacks around like 1989 uh, for the Batman film. And uh, you know, we talk about what a great artist he is. I think Neil Adams is one of those artists that almost looks better in black and white than he does in color. Because mm. you can really see the the detail of the work. It's in black I agree and with white. That. I do. Yeah, I well, I don't. I mean, better or not, I don't know. I mean, for the color, I, I can certainly understand his issues with the coloring at the time. I mean, a contemporary of his, I think, even you know, somebody that, that he worked on at, uh, with um, uh, on Tomb of Dracula, just like uh, of of uh, oh man, I'm drawing a blank. Gene Colan. Thank you. Like they have, they have art styles where like, I can't stand to watch Gene Cohen stuff colored back in the day. Like those, those essentials, which have his black and white work of Tomb of Dracula to me are, are, they should be called it. Yeah, they are essentials. They just are amazingly uh, beautifully drawn. Um, And I, and I don't like watch, I don't like seeing what color does to them. It's very tricky to color, uh, to color him. And, and, and I think Neil to an extent is a little bit like that as well. Um, I, I must say, um, you know, uh, not to turn this into sort of a, a bashing thing or whatever, but um, I don't care for a lot of his coloring over the last, like that he's recolored over the last like decade or so, a lot of his work. Um, I, I, I find it a little too much uh, a bit, but I don't know, maybe that's just me. Um, but a lot of the work that he's done in the last, like, I think in 2010, he came back and did Batman Odyssey. He's done a few things for Marvel and, and DC over the, oh, the last, like, sort of, you know, two decades, as I should say, of, uh, uh, of things. Uh, but, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I love those. Well, I know I don't love those. Let's put it that way. Um, but, uh, but I still kind of respect him for going out there and doing it his way. Absolutely. Oh, of course. Totally yeah, makes I'm, sense. I'm with you on the recoloring, by the way, in most cases. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I think some stuff looks good, but sometimes it looks like it's oversaturated. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Like the brights are like, the colors are a little bit too bright. Maybe it's because I like seeing Adam's work darker. Um, and that could be some of the brighter colors just kind of throw me off a little bit. Um, but, uh, I, I certainly, I think, I think some know, of his, I think some of his later work, uh, also suffers a little bit from, uh, you know, going a little bit too far with the expressiveness in, in all sincerity. Um, but, uh, but, but that having been said, man, going back to a point that you were making a moment ago about, um, how much he did for older creators, Yes. I want to also reiterate how much he did for younger creators at the same time and making sure that like, in addition to being an amazing artist, amazing human, you know, uh, the two, the two artists that I want to mention that he had profound influence on that I'm not sure everyone knows about are uh, number one, Frank Miller. Frank Miller used to hang out at continuity and learn from him all the time, apparently. Uh, and then the other one that I think is really important to mention 
as a disciple of his is Bilston Kevich. Oh, mm. big time. Big time. Well, it's interesting because Sienkiewicz came from the advertising world. Right. And so did Neil. And they found a kinship there also. Well, when um, the story that I heard is that when Sienkiewicz uh, went to D.C. to try to get work, Neil saw his stuff and basically called up Marvel and got him a gig right away. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so – uh, and then, and then, and then, Bill goes on to say that he uh, uh, he got really mad about being called a, a, a Neil Adams clone, and so he had to figure out a way to draw that was completely unlike that. Um, but if you <laughs> see did. those early Moon Knights, you can totally see it. Oh, very much so. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, they wanted to create a Batman clone character, and why not? You know. Yeah. Yeah. And and you could tell that Frank was really listening on those business conversations because that man just played both of those companies against each other like a fiddle. I mean, it was just (laughs) like, like, you know, contemporary Frank Miller to the side. uh, I have a lot of respect for 80s Frank Miller for being the guy that's like, yeah, I'm I'm really popular. I'm going to go over here and draw Ronin. Uh, and they're going to pay me a lot of money to do it. And then I'm going to do Batman, and then I'm going to go back and do Daredevil. Right. Yeah. And then I'm going to do Batman again, and then I'm going to go create my own stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's a uh, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, maybe not in their style, but certainly in their personalities uh, and in their careers. I think um, to the extent that I think you know, as they got older, like certainly over the last twenty years, both of them have like done things their way which is i think some of us are like oh that's shocking but it's <laughs> it's what they want to do and they're doing it sure. the way they want to do it and uh i think they're looking at it from a, a different lens um and i and i do appreciate that um but uh one thing i also wanted to mention to you about creator's rights and and his involvement in that is he is he, you know he is one of the founders of the comics creators guild Mm-hmm. Uh, which um, helps out writers and artists as well, and everybody in the comics industry. And and so um, you know, as much as as much as he's known for his ego, um, <laughs> you know, he's a he's done a lot to deserve that to be put on that pedestal, and b he's given a lot back, a mm-hmm. lot yeah, back a lot to the back. industry. That's exactly. It's right. not like he just made his his name and and took off and you know never never look back um because i think he is one of uh i think he's always believed in comics as sequential art form Mm -hmm. um so much so that he helped improve it i think he always thought that there was something missing and he brought what he thought was missing to it and he was right um and i don't think and in a lot of ways i don't think comics was the same after he really started getting going and and um as one of you mentioned, I think we're still basking in that glow, right? Yeah. In some ways, in many ways. Yeah. yeah. It's hard pressed to think of an artist that's come along. That's made as much of an impact. Not to say that hasn't been any great artists, but it's hard to think of guys that have come along and made as much of an impact as he did on the industry after him. Well, it, I was going to say, it's interesting too, how you say that because Neil was one of those artists who I felt like could draw any character and and you know drawn great and they looked fantastic there's only two other artists i think of who could do that and 
um, one of them's not with us anymore either. And one of them, that was George Perez. Mm-hmm. And you I know, agree with that. And totally then, different styles. But oh, you, completely. Yes. But also the other one I'm thinking. <laughs> totally different personalities too. Oh, very much so. But then you also, <laughs> the other one I'm thinking of is John Byrne. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the three of them could draw any single character, all completely different styles mm-hmm. and everything. But their renditions of the characters are what you expect it. Because, you know, like when Kirby drew a Superman, they had to have a different artist draw Superman's face because Kirby couldn't do it. And you had... No, they couldn't. They just didn't. They didn't care. Yeah, they wanted they the house style. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Kirby, the same thing Kirby drew Spider-Man, but they were like, mm, we wanted yeah. a little bit more, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, there were certain, you know, artists that, you know, you expect that from. And those three, you know, if you knew they were going to be doing a team-up book or a crossover book, you knew these characters were going to look amazing. Mm-hmm. I know he must have done, but did Neil do? I'm surprised he never had a run on Spider-Man. I know he must have drawn him at some point in his history, but I, I'm hard pressed. He never had like a run on him or anything. And I'm like, that it seemed like, especially with his work on Dead Man, that would have been a character that I would have thought he would have been made to draw. Yeah, I mean, you mix Dead Man and Batman, and you have Spider-Man. So, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Uh, you know, and, and Spider-Man always worked better with the crime noir, so it would have been really cool to to see him. And that it might just have been a character he had no interest in. I mean, yeah, that could be. Uh, it's it, it's interesting, you know, that we that we mentioned, you know, Perez and Byrne and Adams. It's just like these are all people that drew the Avengers. <laughs> I mean, yep. Just just to go further, and and while Perez didn't have like a lengthy run, they all drew the X Men too. So yep. it's 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 kind of funny that like you have artists that are really good, like exceptionally good at like one or two characters, but it is rare to have that artist that can basically draw all of them. And I, I remember in the nineties, uh, I wasn't buying a lot of books in the early nineties, unfortunately, cause I was, you know, a teenager and didn't have much disposable income, but I remember seeing the continuity books on the stands. Neil made a run at that. Um, the, you know, trying to get in on that era and having the crossovers and stuff. And I, and I got to see some of it towards the, the late latter part of the decade. And I'm like, wow, some of this stuff is really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we didn't even really talk much about Bucky O'Hare. <laughs> which is, wasn't that, wasn't that one of the biggest characters that came out of Continuity. No, I, think the, I think the biggest character that came out of continuity, as far as the ones that Neil uh, had his hands on, was Miss Mystic. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. But the but but Megalith and uh, and Armor were the two that that I really remember from that. But then again, I wasn't reading it in the '90s. I was reading it in the gotcha. early mid '80s. Yeah, because I was going to say, you know, how long did it take between Miss Mystic issue one and number two? About a decade. About a decade or so. <laughs> See, Mike, Tiki Zombie has hope, you know? All right. On that note, all right. So so for those people who are listening that are not as familiar with Neil Adams, or even those people who are familiar with uh, Neil Adams casually or whatever, is there anything that you guys would recommend that they definitely check out to really appreciate him? Uh, and his work, um, you know, there's the big things, of course, but is there anything that you guys can think of that maybe is a little under the radar or just something specific that uh, that really needs to be in their library? Um, Alan, we'll start with you. What uh, is there anything that you think that uh, somebody needs to look at as far as appreciating Neil? 
I mean, um, I'll, you know, the 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 three the four things that I think people need to see are, you know, the three big things: Dead Man, uh, Batman, Ra's al Ghul, and um, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow. But then, you know, I have I have a big soft spot for that armor story. It's only it's only a two issue thing i don't think he ever got to a third issue but um, but uh but it's really really breathtakingly beautiful and it's it represents like the very beginning of the whole uh baxter paper concept in comics mm-hmm. is is that uh is the continuity stuff collected at all or is it just no i think but 25 I, but cent I, bin or anything uh, you can probably find it in the 25 cent bin gotcha absolutely gotcha. so you can get a good deal on that stuff right yeah man uh michael bailey what about you what's something you recommend really look at his brave and the bold work i mean i know mm-hmm. you know the reams of papers have been written and hours of audio has been recorded about like you know his work with denny o'neill but you know if you're going to put two people together no on paper bob haney and neil adams do not make sense mm-hmm. and yet they may he managed to come in and kind of under the radar revolutionize not only batman but green arrow as well i mean that look for green arrow was the look of green arrow up until mike grell took over the character mm-hmm. uh that was the superpowers figure um and you got to see him playing with the other characters of the dc universe as well because it was a team-up book uh and it is funny it's just like if bob haney wrote that the scene was during the day neil was like no this is night no you don't have a choice it's night because he looks better at night, so that's what I'm doing. It's <laughs> <Sure. laughs> pretty awesome. Uh, Mike, what about you? Um, for me, um, going to be a little different. Uh, of course, you know, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series is just amazing. And it's, you know, just a groundbreaking series in itself. But I'm going to have to mention uh, his, some of his Marvel work that I would love people to check out. His run on X-Men was amazing. Uh, him and Roy Thomas had so much fun. They're the ones who created the giant Sentinels and brought mm-hmm. them back as major bad guys. That introduced uh, Sauron, um, who was this giant mutant pterodactyl. And then you also had the introduction of Polaris and Havoc. You know, some amazing costumes and designs were just awesome stories. Awesome, awesome stories. But then also the Kree Skrill War in Avengers. That era is just awesome. And, you know, you can find those in definitive volumes and such, all those series. And it is so worth checking out, folks. And his work, because I know, like, with Roy Thomas's stuff that he was doing in X-Men, he had Neil actually, you know, he had a plot that he gave to Neil. Then Neil drew him and he then put in the text and this wrote the story around what Neil was drawing in some of these pages. That was just so amazing to see. Cause Absolutely. It's just, it's just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first and foremost thing that I would recommend is the absolute Green Lantern and Green Arrow series. That's a must, I think, for everybody's collection. Um, I can't speak of that highly enough. But if you're looking for some under-the-radar stuff that's really impressive, uh, his Dead Man run has been collected. And uh, that's pretty awesome. And that's like 
that's like pre Batman. That's like that's like Neil kind of like just getting started at DC and having a lot of fun. Um, but also, and I don't think this has ever been collected. So shame on everybody for doing like this. You know, hopefully, you know, this will be collected, uh, unfortunately, in and out of these past, but maybe there's some hurdles that can be overdone. But his work for Warren, right? Like if, I mean, I have uh, a couple of collections of archives of uh, Vampirella, Vampirella number one. He has a story on uh, and as well as eerie and creepy a story that he did called Curse of the Vampire Um, is just just phenomenal stuff uh it's all black and white as uh we were some of us were mentioning like that's like a really good way to see his artwork and he's really like you know he has a lot of fun with drawing that kind of horror type stuff and he i don't think he really did it as much later on but man some of that stuff that he did for warren i I hope it's collected at some point because i think he did at least like anywhere between five to ten stories for them so surely that's enough for a, a hardcover of some kind but in any case uh, seek out his work if you have not familiar with it, or even if you are familiar with it, but you have, it's been a while since you've gone and looked at it. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think it never gets old as far as I'm concerned, uh, going back and rereading his stories, especially in a nice, cool collected or even digital format. You know, I know people aren't not, some, some people aren't crazy about digital comics, but man, you know, some of that stuff that you can get on uh, the DC, uh, what is it called? DC Infinity, is that right? Uh, infinite. There, yeah, Infinite. And, and, the, and the Marvel stuff and everything like that. Like, like that's some, it really helps, I think, uh, bring his stuff to life. It's because uh, it's most of it's been, you know, restored and redone in some cases uh, the way O'Neill wants it. So, uh, so that's, uh, you can't ask for more than that. But in any case, uh, he was a legend, um, and I don't think that's ever going to go away. Uh, his his status as uh, one of the big big forces in comics, American comics, comics in general, is going to be forever. I think so. Um, so, guys, thanks a lot for coming on and, and reminiscing about his his contributions, his talent, etc. Um, uh, we're going to be we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to close out the show. Welcome to A Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela, and this week, this geek girl is talking about the show First Kill on Netflix. There has been so much good TV out there recently. New Star Wars, new Marvel, Umbrella Academy, Stranger Things, but one that you could possibly miss if you didn't know about it, First Kill, is just came out in the last couple weeks. It's based off a short story and produced by Emma Roberts Production Company. This story of teenage love between a vampire and a monster hunter is so well done and such a great story for just all eight episodes. You are just drawn in. It's also so wonderful to see a show with so much queer representation in it. The story was fun with lots of twists and turns. It does have that WBCW vibe to it, but I feel like if you were a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or the Vampire Diaries, you'd really like this show. The story follows Juliet, a vampire, and Cal a hunter, and their unconventional relationship. Juliet is fighting with not wanting to take a life and drain someone since she was born a vampire, and when they come of age, they have to start drinking blood from people. And Cal is the new girl in Savannah, and the two are just instantly drawn together. Their families are also very prominent in this series, and super interesting as well. 
I really hope with the way that the first season ended that we get a season two because I need to know what happened. Well, thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I talk about next week? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. So that's going to wrap up another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. Let's thank our guests for being here. Alan, thank you so much for your insight tonight. It was awesome. Thanks so much for having me. always love being on your show, man. Anything you want to shout out about or promote? Um, yeah, so I've got uh, – I'm, I'm going to tell you about something I put out recently, something that's about to come out, and something that's an ongoing project very quickly. The uh, the thing that I've put out recently is called Blackland. It's the first graphic novel in the Crow Chronicle series. I'm doing uh, classic monster stories if they were teenagers living in the Mississippi Delta. My first story is a mummy story. The oh, thing that's about cool. to come out. Yeah. That sounds awesome, dude. I would love Thanks. to see it. That sounds um, really the, cool. The, uh, the, the thing that's about to come out in this October is uh, the second volume of my uh, of my Mangroves illustrated um, uh, uh, the middle grade novel series, and uh, the uh, and it's it's a uh, it's about a uh, it's about a bluegrass band of monsters who solve Scooby Doo style mysteries. Hmm. Whoa! Okay, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. That- um, and I knew that would be right up your alley too. Oh, well, you know what kind of music I like and everything. So that's exactly right. Um, and then the ongoing project that I have is uh, myself and my friend Sean Crystal. We do this thing called Ink Pulp Instruction. It is um, a, a series of long form uh, instructional videos featuring uh, high profile comic book creators. We just put one out a few months ago with uh, Sean Murphy. Um, we have one coming out soon with Ramon Perez. And, um, you know, if, uh, if you're looking to, uh, to, 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 to learn more about this crazy, uh, idiom we call comic art, uh, please check out ink pulp instruction. Cool. That is awesome. And Mr. Michael Bailey, thank you as always, my friend. Uh, well, thank you. This is uh, always fun to, to stop by the station. Oh, uh, dude, anything you want to promote? Uh, well, uh, you know, for, for the Fortress of Bailey 2 podcasting network, which I laughingly call, uh, I, I say that like it's a, a real thing. It's just where all my shows are. But I've actually been kicking out a lot of stuff. We just finished up the uh, second season of Superman and Lois on the Superman and Lois tapes. Uh, we've got a couple more, like one or two more episodes to talk about because there was a comic that came out. Uh, it all comes back to Superman has come back uh, because... I need it. <laughs> I'm Norman McKay, uh, the first issue of Print Kingdom Come. Uh, now more than ever, we need hope. So, uh, and Overlook Dark Knight uh, is continuing where Andy Leyland and I talk about the Batman stories that no one really talks about, which is funny because the next episode to come out, we're talking about the first appearance of Rachel Cool. Uh, but that's only because it's that? a Neil Adams thing. <laughs> so. But we also have an episode coming up about Batman Hidden Treasures. And if you've never read that, it's a Bernie Wrightson Batman story told completely in splash pages. Oh, cool. That is really, really cool. But you can find that at www.fortressofbailey2.com. 
Nice. Nice, 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 my friend. We couldn't think of doing a, you know, Neil Adams type character review without you being part of it. So it's just like. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I do. <laughs> yes. And of course, Mr. Mike Gordon, we made it through another one, my friend. We did. And as always, it's my pleasure. Anything you want to shout out about, sir? I do. We didn't have a creative outlook uh, segment this week, but uh, I will fill that gap right now by uh, talking about a project from a good friend of ours, a good friend of mine and a creator of the did one of the covers uh, of the last issue of Tiki Zombie, Robert Jimenez. Good friend, good talent. Uh, he's inspired, his work is inspired not only by Tiki stuff, but also by wacky packages, garbage bail kids, things of that nature. Well, he's re- he's uh, recently done um, or released a new Kickstarter project for a new card set call of his uh, cards called Fearsome Weirdos, which is very much in those uh, same styles of the wacky packs and whatnot. Uh, this is called K- uh, Kaiju Creeps. And it's his weird sort of creepy weirdo take on uh, Godzilla and uh, all those uh, King Kong, all those uh, large monsters that uh, he pokes fun at. Um, It's a project that uh, is going to be around for a few weeks. So back it when you can. It's pretty much the only way you can get these cards. They're really cool card sets. Um, and he's, his designs on some of these creatures are just, uh, phenomenal. So I would check that out. If I were you guys, we'll have a link in the show notes. It is already pledged, but, uh, it's already met its pledge goal, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't need the support. And if you want to get these cards, uh, just take advantage of, of this Kickstarter while it still is, uh, around. That's awesome. That's so, so true. You know, help, help him out. He's an amazing artist, folks. And, even though, like Mike said, even though he said his goals, you know, there's stretch goals and there's all these extra, you know, bonuses that you can benefit from if you help him out, which is pretty awesome. And, you know, it just it's good to see a good person do very well. And that's a that's what I love to see. All right. Um, my shout out real quick. And it's going out to you guys. Actually, I need your help. And my shout out is basically Judy and I are going to be going on a pretty fun adventure the first weekend in august we are going to take friday off from work and go all the way through sunday and we are going to do the world's largest yard sale it's very well known um up and down the east coast and it goes from gadsden alabama all the way up into michigan and we are going to start Friday and go all the way up as far as we can make it. We're hoping to make it at least out of Tennessee and, you know, to, cause it goes right through Ch- Chattanooga. It goes lookout mountain and then it goes up through central Tennessee and into Kentucky. And it just sounds amazing. I've seen YouTube videos on it. We've, and Judy and I just looked at each other and we said, let's do it. Let's try it, you know, and, you know, see what kind of trash we can get out of it, you know, because you never know, you know, like somebody says a yard sale, somebody else's junk is somebody else's treasure. So, you know, it's always great to, you know, check out that kind of thing. And we've never done anything like that. And so it's a road trip that we're going to do. So we want to hear from you guys. Please let us know. Write us here at feedback at com. 
we want to know, have you guys done it? Have you tried it? You know, um, I know our friend Robert from Borderlands Comics has does it almost every year, and he comes back with a truckload of stuff for the store. And so it's, you know, pretty cool. And it just it sounds like a neat adventure. And, you know, I think they call it the 127 yard sale. And it's going to be fun to try. So we'll give you reports and everything. And I'm sure on Facebook we'll be posting pictures and, you know, you know, finds and stuff like that as we go along. We actually picked up a GoPro and we might actually try it out for the first time during the yard sale. So it should be kind of fun just to see what kind of stuff we can find. Definitely interesting, at least. So I wanted to throw that out as for my shout out this time. So as always, we will be back again next week. We have a great one lined up for you folks. We have a very special guest who is going to be joining us in the geek seat. We can't mention who it is yet, folks. Um, but listen to this one. I think you guys will be pretty awesome. prepared for this one. We're also going to go back to the movies. Ashley will be joining us, and we are going to be looking at the new Thor movie. That's right. Love and Thunder is finally coming out. And, you know, it's been, what, six weeks since we've had a Marvel movie? So, you know, it's about time they had another project out. And, you know, with, you know, Ms. Marvel ending this week, and, you know, we needed some kind of Marvel fix after that. So it should be a ton of fun. So we definitely would love to hear from you guys. Um, please join us. You know, we definitely would love it. And please, feedback at earthstation1.com. Email us. Write us. Let us know what you guys think of what's going on, what's going on in your lives. We have a ton of people out there we haven't heard from in a bit. So we definitely would love to hear from you guys. Just touch base. Let us know how you're doing. So as always, as we love to say on the show, thank you for listening to the Earth Station One podcast. We're powered by NSC. You can find them at nsclivetv.com. Remember, you can also find Earth Station One wherever fine podcasts are found, including now TuneIn Radio and Pandora. That's right, folks. We are up on Pandora. So you can go say, hey, Alexa, listen to the Earth Station One podcast on Pandora. You'll thank me later. Trust me. Now we know why the world ended when they opened Pandora's box. Exactly. There you go. On behalf of myself, Mike Faber, Mr. Mike Gordon, Alan O.W. Barnes, and, of course, Mr. Michael Bailey, thank you for listening to the Earth Station One podcast. Thanks, everybody. Please just stay safe. Enjoy you know, July. It's going to be hot, folks. Have fun. We will see you soon. And you know what? Say hi to your neighbor and say, how's it going? Too many people aren't doing that anymore. All right, we're out of here. Peace, and we're done. Boom. Yay. You've been listening to the Air Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Earth Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our T Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. Become a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. We want to hear from you. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on 
the Earth Station One podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping at the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.